0: gospel text for this morning. It comes to us from the Gospel of John. You can read along if you'd like in chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as Jesus walked by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard this, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever received an invitation that made you so curious you just had to accept? For me, it came in the form of a phone call about five or six years ago. I was home visiting family over Christmas in Buffalo, New York, when my cousin Jay called. I picked up the phone and he said, with some pretty significant intensity, what are you doing today? I have something I've got to show you, but we've got to go today, we've got to go right now, and I can't tell you what it is. It's a surprise. So I said, okay, well, can I at least know where we're going so I know how to prepare myself? And he said, Kate, we're going to the Ridge. The Ridge meaning Chestnut Ridge, which is a state park just outside of Buffalo, New York. We used to hang out there when we were kids. We used to walk the trails there. We used to have all of our big family birthday parties there. I said, the ridge, it's winter. It is cold, it's snowing, why would we go there? I can't tell you, Jay said. Just get ready, I'm coming to pick you up in 15 minutes. And he slammed the phone down. Well, Jay and I, we are pretty big adventurers. He's never steered me wrong before, so I just said, okay, I guess we're going. So I got my boots and my coat on, I found my gloves, I wrapped a scarf around my neck, and I waited for him to come pick me up. He pulled in the driveway, I get in the car, and I'm looking around, and the weather's not too bad. There's just a few flurries. But as we drive further and further out of town, the weather starts to get worse. The snow really starts coming down, visibility's not good, the roads get a little icy, and by the time we get to the state park and we get out of the car, I said to Jay, Jay, are you sure you want to do this? He said, yeah, this whole thing will take us an hour tops. An hour, I thought to myself, I don't want to be out here for an hour, but I kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to appear to be like a wimp. And so as we're walking along, the snow starts getting heavier and heavier. It's already a foot and a half deep. It's beginning to cover the trail markers, so we can't see exactly where we're going. 15 to 20 minutes in, my hands and my feet start freezing. 45 minutes in, the muscles in my ankles and my legs and my back begin to get sore because we're trudging through two feet of snow. We turn one way and we start walking for maybe 10 minutes when we realize that we've gone the wrong way and we have to turn around and backtrack and go another way. And about an hour and 15 minutes into a walk that was only supposed to be an hour total, Jay tells me that he wants to head down into a ravine. A ravine. So it's beautiful. I'm not going to lie. It's white. It's glorious. There's these huge icicles that are hanging down from the branches. And I might have admitted this, but I was afraid that one of them was going to snap off and impale one of us at some point because of the wind. And I felt so guilty because I was praying that if Jay, if God was going to take somebody home that day, it was going to be Jay because he put me through all of this. And so I said, Jay, we are going to slip and fall, man. We can't go down there. He says, yes, we can. It's fine. You'll just go behind me. I'll block you. He's kind of a big guy. Sure enough, we get halfway down into this ravine. I'm slipping and falling everywhere. And by the time we get to the bottom, I say, Jay, I need you to tell me right now what we're doing down here at the end of the earth, because it's been two hours, and I'm an hour over my limit. And just then... Jay bends down, and he looks into this tiny hole that is in the crack of the rock. He looks inside, and he says, this, this is what I want to show you. Come here. So exasperatedly, I bend down, and I peer inside this little hole, and it's a cavern. It's a giant stone cavern, and inside this cavern, there is a tiny flame. It's so tiny that you can hardly even see it, but because the cavern is so dark, it is flickering and it's lighting up the stone walls all around it. It was crazy. Stunned, I was like, what is this? How is this? And Jay said, they call it the eternal flame. I just happened to come upon it a week or so ago when I was here, And I knew you had to see it. I knew you had to see it in the snow. And I knew that if I told you what we were going to see, you would not want to do it. Apparently, it's this natural gas spring, and it's almost always lit. Now, I couldn't bring myself to tell Jay that he was probably right. Had he told me exactly what we were going to see, my curiosity probably wouldn't have uh, inspired me to go out. I would have taken one look at the weather, I would have determined that there is no flickering light on this planet that would get me to go outside, no matter where it was hiding, and we could go when the conditions were better. But I just looked up at Jay, and I said, I'm really glad you didn't tell me, because this experience was worth its weight in gold. Our curiosity, it seems to take us to places where we otherwise wouldn't go. If you are a parent, or a favorite aunt or uncle or grandparent, you know that curiosity is the thing you feel when you're driving with a kid in your back seat and they ask you their most favorite question in the whole world. Why? Why? Why are clouds a thing? Why are there so many shapes of clouds? Why are they so high up in the sky? Why are they white and the rest of the sky is blue? Why? And you kind of exasperatedly begin to wonder yourself, yeah, why? I feel like I must have learned this at some point and you go home and you spend your entire night on the computer becoming a cloud expert. Curiosity is the thing that drove Thomas Edison to speak his famous line in his attempt to make the light bulb, which he failed over and over again at. He said, I didn't fail. I simply found 10,000 ways that don't work. Curiosity is the feeling that kicks in only after you've committed to getting through the first 50 to 100 pages of a novel, and now you are so interested that you are missing appointments. You are losing sleep because you just have to find out what happens at the end of this story. It's what inspired nonviolent activist Martin Luther King Jr., whose life we celebrate tomorrow. To attend a riot in Los Angeles just days after President Lyndon Johnson granted African-Americans the right to vote, and he sat with young men who were a part of this riot and who were still living in the devastating ramifications of economic and social effects of racism in the U.S. And then he spent months writing a book about it. Curiosity, it takes us to the places where we otherwise might not go. And very often when we get there, wherever there is, we are almost always glad that we went. But to indulge our curiosity seems to be something that a lot of us find increasingly difficult throughout the course of our lives. Last week, we talked about how in the season of Epiphany, God's gifts show up to us in our world, and in all kinds of unexpected places. We talked about how often they're unexpected because they don't always show up in ways we think they will, or they don't always show up in ways that we feel like is a gift to us at the time, or maybe those places they make us uncomfortable. And I have been wondering if our human propensity for curiosity is one of those gifts. We seem a bit afraid, especially as adults, to practice curiosity. To be curious means a couple of things. For one, it means to accept that maybe we don't know something. And not knowing is something very few people in our present world and across cultures like to admit or accept, isn't it? In fact, very often to admit not knowing something can feel like a shameful thing in our daily lives. In the classroom, in the workplace, with our children. And for another thing, curiosity requires that we have to learn to live in uncertainty, right? In the ambiguity of life for a time, to ask questions that might not have immediate answers to sit in the unknownness without the power to move forward in a particular direction for a time. And that is uncomfortable, isn't it? It's quite destabilizing, in fact. As human beings, we like certainty. We like security and safety and stability. We like to know a future outcome before we make a decision to commit to a particular path or belief. And because of this, many of us spend our whole lives moving away from curiosity. We try to find solid answers and certainties that we can build our lives on. And then we defend those things for all they're worth. It's why churches... And denominations and religions spend so much of our precious time fighting about the best ways to think about God and the world we live in. Why, at least in our American culture, we are embroiled in battles over who has the most firm grasp on truth and reality. Think about our immediate desire to want to yell thank yous in somebody's face when they disagree with us. Think about the politicians that pose as though they've come up with the foolproof answers for the things that are killing us, or our gut reaction to blame a single person, or a party, or a social plague for all the things that ail our lives and this world. We like answers. Neat and tidy boxes that we can slip the most comfortable things into people and problems and even God in the hopes that they'll stay there and they won't make our lives more messy. And we get mad at anyone who starts rummaging through our boxes, who tries to dump them over and challenge our preconceived ideas. Now, this isn't a new human dilemma, We are not the only ones that struggle with this. When John the Baptist comes on the scene in the Gospel of John, he's probably the only one who is perfectly content to live in curious ambiguity. He wandered the wilderness. He points to this guy named Jesus, who he very clearly states twice in the text, I hardly know anything about him, but I know he's the one, so I'm going. And he starts following Jesus. He invites all his friends to do the same. But his friends, they are so uncomfortable. As they go, they spend most of their time trying to get answers and figure Jesus out. To nail down who Jesus is and what exactly he can do for them, they immediately ask, Jesus, where are you staying? A.K.A. Jesus, where are you taking us? Just beyond these verses, before Nathanael is willing to follow Jesus, he asks, where exactly is this guy from again? At the wedding at Cana, they ask, what can you do for us? At the temple, they ask, can you give us a sign so we know that you are who you say you are? In chapter three, Nicodemus asks, how can any of this be? The further they journey with Jesus in the gospel of John, the more questions they have and the more insistent they become. They want certainty, to know that their lives are headed in the right direction. And truth be told, I am not sure they ever fully get it. The longer they follow Jesus, you can read it. The more complicated life becomes. The answers to all their questions about God and what Jesus can do for them becomes hazier all the time. He gave them very few certainties to build their lives on. When they asked, the only definitive statements Jesus ever seemed to give were things like, God is spirit, and God is love. What the heck does that mean? As Jesus accompanied them on this journey of life, he spent most of his time speaking truth that felt vague to them. Not to torture them, but maybe because he was challenging them to see that God wasn't confined to their certainties. God didn't belong to the places they preferred or were most used to God showing up. And so, if they ever really wanted to know God, if they ever really wanted to know what Jesus could do for them, they were going to need their God-given curiosity to accept the invitation and come and see. We seem to have this idea that ultimate truth, whatever that is, is something we get to define and possess and control. That somehow it belongs to us, or at least some of us. The idea that that truth is handed down to us from the past, in things like creeds, practices, prayers, and ideas, and that our job is simply to just preserve and maintain them. As if the only place God ever showed up and did anything new was back then. And unfortunately, I think this makes us hard of hearing. For one, it keeps us from seeing the beauty of how God might have shown up back then and how it informs our present, but for another... It paralyzes us from being able to experience the best things about God in our life and experiences now. It makes us afraid to name our mistakes and correct course. It keeps us from being able to experience the best things about life which often take a lifetime of reflection to really know. What if like that little flame we found in that gosh darn ravine, God's presence and whatever is most ultimately true in this world encounters us on a journey? What if it shows up in the present all of the time and is waiting for us to engage it? What if ultimate truth and God is not something we get to possess and define by our own terms, but rather it's something we get to live within? An experience. What if everything about our lives somehow points to the very being and nature of God? And so, as long as we are open to it, we get to spend our whole lives learning to understand it more fully. I think Jesus knew that the answers to life could not be found in tiny and neat boxes The best things, the most true things take a willingness to explore and a lifetime to understand. And yes, exercising their curiosity meant that the disciples would live with far fewer answers and certainties. They would engage in a whole lot more risk and doubt and difficulty. And sometimes they would walk away from their experiences feeling bruised and reeling and confused, but at least their faith didn't grow stale, like a dead pond having been robbed of all its oxygen. It was alive, their understanding of God was alive and it was changing all of the time and it was growing. Do we know what that's like? You know, when I was a teenager in the church, I often heard the phrase faith is something you only have to say yes to once. It was usually made when we would see the same person respond to altar call after altar call. They would go up and re- get resaved or they would rededicate their life again and again and again, and we used to joke. We used to say things like, well, I guess the first time didn't stick. It was a subtle critique. That either that person didn't understand how God's grace worked or that they didn't mean it the first time. But as I look back now, I have to wonder, does anybody really mean it the first time? Or understand this curious and magnificent thing like grace the first time? Of course, it takes more than a single confession or fleeting moment in time or a feeling for the mysterious love of God to stick in our lives to encounter us and transform us and save us fully. Choosing to be people of faith means choosing to say yes to our curiosity, to our human experiences, to a journey we spend our whole lives on, discovering who we are and who God is And who our community is. It's a journey that often is filled with more questions than answers, more doubt than total certainty, more courageous risk taking that ever feels comfortable, and committing more of ourselves to people and places than they may commit to us. But if the disciples give us any hope for our lives at all, it's that if, as disciples ourselves, as Scott talked about this morning, if we are open to how God might be showing up, if we say yes to the gift of curiosity that we've been given, you know, I think in the end, we will be more full because we will have seen more lives changed and more mouths fed and more mercy shown and more miracles discovered and more healing done and a God who is so much greater than anything we could have possibly imagined on our own. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks for the gift of our curiosity. God, it doesn't always feel like a gift. We don't always know how to use it. We don't always want to use it because it challenges our perspective on things, it challenges our knowingness. But, God, we believe that you are the God of all mystery that you are the ultimate truth. And so give us grace and humility and courage to name that and explore that and to wonder about it so that our faith doesn't grow stale, Meet us today, in this moment, in our relationships, and in the call you have put on our lives to be people who are transformed and so that we can go out into the world and work for your glorious transformation. In the name of Jesus the Christ, all God's people said together, Amen.